beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, living the Christian life is not always easy. In fact, sometimes living consistently as a Christian can be downright difficult. Any message that says Christians are perfect people without any struggles is simply false. Now, what is, what is a Christian, a believer? Yes, a Christian, a believer, has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we have. A Christian has been adopted by God the Father into God's family. A Christian also has been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, a Christian is also a person in a bitter war with our old sinful desires. A Christian, a believer, knows that he or she is still a broken person because of sin, because of the remaining sin that we struggle with every day. As Christians, we are not yet made perfect. And so the Christian life from day to day can be an immense struggle for us as believers. You see, here in Lord's Day 33, we are coming to face with the nitty-gritty of the Christian life. And the true repentance or conversion described here gives us the day-to-day reality that we face, the struggle against our, our old nature, the coming to life of the new, and it's a reality that is sometimes, sometimes it's messy, difficult. However, while living the Christian life can be a struggle, it's also a beautiful transformation. A Christian is being changed by God from the inside out. It's true we are not transformed all at once. We are not yet made perfect in this life. But we are changed. And we will be changed more and more through this process described in Lord's Day 33, this process of repentance or, or conversion. It's a day-to-day thing we face as Christians. What is key to grow in this transformation? Well, while it might sound cliche, it's true that we need to keep coming back to the gospel of Christ keep focusing on what we have in Jesus Christ. We need to keep focusing on who we are in Christ and live every day in light of that reality. So that brings us to the sermon theme. And I've expanded it just a little bit from what I sent into the liturgy, so it's a little bit different. Live as you are in Christ by practicing true repentance. So live as you are in Christ by practicing true repentance. We'll see that this involves, first of all, delighting in and doing the will of God. Secondly, it involves putting to death your old life of sin. And finally, it involves submitting to the Bible's definition of good. So first of all, delighting in and doing the will of God. So Lord's Day 33 begins by asking, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? And the answer, it is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. And the catechism then explains first the dying of the old nature, and then after that, the coming to life of the new. 
And there's nothing wrong with focusing on the dying of the old nature first. In fact, it's quite logical. However, in this sermon, we're going to focus first on the coming to life of the new nature, and then the dying of the old nature. So, in the opposite order of the catechism, why are we doing it this way? Well, first, for this sermon, I want to put the focus squarely on Christ, what we have in Christ, a living in light of that reality. In order to live the Christian life, we need to live as we already are in Jesus Christ. In fact, we can even say the old nature dies as the new nature grows in in us, takes hold more and more. As new desires grow and increase, they will push out the old sinful ones. You see, we will not truly be transformed if we only focus on fighting the remaining sin in our lives. Yes, that's a necessary part of being changed. But if we only do that, if our focus is only on that, it only keeps the focus on sin. And so even if one sin is defeated, it could leave a, like a spiritual vacuum in our hearts. Sooner or later, our heart will just latch on to a new desire. So, we need new desires, godly desires, to push out the old sinful ones. And your actions in life, day to day, the things you do, they will be determined by what your heart is focused on. If our heart is focused on the things of the flesh, things of sin, we will live according to the flesh. If our heart is focused on the things of Christ, we will begin to live lives that reflect that focus more and more. So let me emphasize that again. Your actions will be determined by what your heart is focused on. Second, I want to have this order uh, looking at our new nature first because of also our reading from Colossians 3. And that passage is similar to our reading last week from Ephesians 2 and also Ephesians 5. When you read Colossians 3 and also Ephesians 2 like we did last week, one thing jumps out at you. We are made alive with Christ even when we are dead in ourselves. Even when we are dead in ourselves, we've been made alive with Christ. And so Scripture so often declares, first of all, who we are in Christ— and then as a result, here's now you, how you should live. We have this new reality in Christ, and so now let's live a new life in him. Both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 2 make this clear. We do not work to gain a new nature. We already have a new nature in Christ. We're not working to become a new creation. We are already new creations in Christ. Listen to Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's our identity. 
as a believer, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. And from this perspective, we now live for God. And the rest of this passage shows how Christians are transformed by living in light of that reality. And this involves the, the coming to life of the new nature more and more. Lord's Day 33 puts it like this, what is the coming to life of the new nature? It is, first of all, a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. And this is such an important part of our transformation. Again, Colossians 3, we've been raised with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. That is who we are, and so we rejoice in those things. And through joy in this gospel, believers will be changed. You will be changed. In Christ, we have gained new joys, new delights, new treasures, a new way of looking at life. Nothing helps as much uh, to let go of sinful desires as when you have something infinitely more precious and valuable to hold on to. You know, how can we cling to sin when we, when we are clinging to Christ and the gospel in joy? We have so much in Him. And so this transformation of our lives begins by treasuring uh, so much what we have in Jesus Christ, the salvation we have. Again, Colossians 3. And it says, the more we set our minds and our hearts on the things that are above, the more our lives on earth will be changed. We will come to delight in the will of God, to do the will of God as a result. Colossians 3 shows us what that looks like. Look at the beginning of verse 12, and running through the next number of verses there we read, as, as God's chosen ones who are holy in Christ, who are beloved in Christ, put on compassionate hearts. Something we need to put on in our lives. First, he talks about getting rid of that old sinful lifestyle, your old self, and also putting on the new self. He says, first of all, put on compassionate hearts. So compassionate hearts. Look with sympathy towards people who are struggling. Also, your brothers and sisters in Christ, look with sympathy uh, upon them. See what you can do to alleviate their suffering. Help them. Put on kindness. You see, a harsh, demeaning attitude towards others is out of place for Christians who have been raised with Christ. Rather, we shape our attitude by by gentleness and a friendly spirit, put on kindness. Another thing we are to put on, we are to put on humility. Again, pride is so far removed from what the Bible talks about as being a Christian. Instead, we refuse to puff ourselves up with pride. We give all glory to God. We count others as more significant than ourselves. We're willing to serve as Christ served. We put on humility. 
Colossians 3 goes on, put on meekness, it says. Well, what is meekness? Meekness is not the same thing as weakness, but meekness is uh, that sense that you don't loudly insist on your own rights for your own gain. You're okay if you don't get your own way because you have everything you have in Christ anyways. Put on patience, it says. Being able to wait calmly for something you want but don't have yet. Put on patience. Bear with one another, it says. As Christians, none of us here are perfect. We are all at different stages in this process of transformation. We all have sin that we are fighting against. So bearing with one another means being able to overlook each other's character flaws. Being patient with each other's weaknesses. Another thing we are to put on, a forgiving attitude. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And that means forgiving freely. Right? Christ forgave us at no cost to us, every cost to Him. It says, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Put on a forgiving spirit. And above all, it says, put on love. It binds everything together in perfect unity. Uh, love does no wrong to our, our neighbor. That's why love is the fulfilling of the law. Put on love above all else. And this is a changed life, beloved. We are not yet made perfect. The more we put on these qualities because of who we are in Christ, the more our lives will be transformed in this process of conversion. That brings us to our second point, putting to death your old life of sin. So again, the beginning of Colossians 3 gives that wonderful description of believers, who we are in Christ. But even though we have this amazing status in Christ, our life is hidden with Christ and God, the reality is we still have that old sinful nature there, and we face that every day. But God commands us uh, to acknowledge that reality and then also do something about it. Colossians 3, you know, put off your old self. We are to crucify our old sinful nature. So he calls us to put them away. God is calling you to show your old life of sin no mercy. Show it no mercy. You know, don't put your old sinful life on life support, keeping it around. Put it to death. Get rid of those evil desires. And it's true, that can, that can be hard for us. They're called desires. Part of us still loves sin. And so we are attracted to that sin. If this is the case, how are we, how are we able to overcome them? Well, again, first of all, it includes living as we are in Christ, a new life. But to help us crucify our old nature, there's many things we can do. And the first thing we need to do is to speak the truth about sin. Speak the truth about sin. 
We see our old nature, our old sinful hearts are deceitful. It lies to us. Our, our hearts will lie to us about sin. It will tell us that sin is good or that indulging sin and giving into temptation will be worth it. But we need to counter the lies with truth. And so we speak the truth about sin. What is the truth about sin? Well, we can say a number of things. The truth is that Satan is tempting you to sin because he hates you. And he wants to destroy your life and to destroy the church. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, tempted Adam and Eve because he hated them and he hated God. And guess what? He also hates you. He's not tempting you with anything good. Speak the truth about Satan and temptation. Here's another truth about sin. The truth is sin will not, in the end, bring you joy no matter what it seems to offer you. Instead, sin will suck your joy away. That is the reality of sin. Don't believe the lies of sin promising you joy. Will not give it in the end. Here's another truth about sin we are to speak to ourselves. The truth is following sinful desires is not freedom. That's what our world will tell us. That's what our hearts might tell us at times, but following sinful desires is bitter slavery. See, sin might taste sweet at first, but sin will eventually turn to bitterness. And listen to how the Holy Spirit speaks about this in Romans 6. There the Apostle Paul says, When you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. So what is he saying? Sure, before you were a Christian, before you were a believer, you indulged sin all the time. But you know what? It didn't benefit you at all. In fact, it only brought a host of destruction with it. Speak the truth about sin. You know, in this regard, think also of King David. Earlier, we read from Psalm 51. It's a psalm of confession and repentance. After his sin with Bathsheba, after he murdered Uriah, in Psalm 51, he describes some of the pain you know, he, he went through because of his sin. He, the guilt of murder weighed on his conscience. He lost the sense of, of the joy of salvation. Again, sin sucking our joy away. He feared a, a ruined relationship with the Lord. He felt so miserable, he felt as though God had broken his very bones. Think also about the aftermath of his sin. His sin with Bathsheba brought about also the rebellion 
of Absalom. How much pain he went through. And seeing these things, we could ask King David, was your sin worth it? Was all that pain worth a few moments of pleasure? And surely he would say to each one of us, no, it was not. Don't be deceived by sin. Speak the truth about it. It was not worth it. And yes, it's true, I may be attracted to a certain sin. Part of me wants to have it. But by speaking the truth to myself, I know that it will only harm me in the end. So instead of indulging sin, let us put it to death. We could go on in similar ways, beloved. You know, speak honestly about the tem- specific temptations you face. Acknowledge it to yourself. Acknowledge it to God. You know, confess to God. You know what, Lord, I'm, I'm tempted by this particular sin. You know what, name it. Name that specific sin to God. And ask the Lord, guard me against temptation in this area. I'm, I'm weak here. Help me in my weakness. We can also speak truth, truthfully about sin's power, that it has also been defeated. You see, sin, temptation might feel strong. But remember, again, who you are in Christ. Christ lives in you. You have been freed from slavery to sin in Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. And so, though, so no matter how strong sinful desires might feel, you do not need to be ruled by sin because you are a free person in Christ. And that goes for even our particular sin you've struggled against for so long. Speak the truth. Sinning is not inevitable. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure. And finally, in order to put sin to death more and more, let's learn to also grieve over our sin. We should ask ourselves, you know, do we ever do that? Do we grieve over our sin? Well, listen to Lord say three, the dying of the old nature is first of all to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. You know what? I don't know our individual lives and our individual relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's worth asking, is this lacking from our Christian lives, our relationship with God? Do we mourn over our sin and Maybe we need to ask, do I need to repent over my lack of repentance? And we think of grieving over sin. Uh, Think again of King David. Yes, he committed some terrible sins. Think of what he did with Bathsheba and how he murdered Uriah. Terrible, horrible. But when he was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, he also poured out his heart before the Lord with a godly sorrow for his sin. You see it throughout Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from all my sins. I've done evil in your sight. I've sinned against you. You only purge me. Wash me. 
Hide your face from my sins. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. The Spirit through David calls us to take on that same attitude. Listen to verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, let's learn to grieve over our sin. And as we do, let's also be assured of God's grace. For David, he was forgiven. His sin, his transgression was blotted out. And God will do that for us as well through the blood of Jesus Christ. That brings us to our third and final point. So, Lord's Day 33 describes the coming to life of the new nature like this. Part of it is a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And that then brings us to the last question and answer of this Lord's Day. Uh, but what, what, what are good works? And at first glance, that might sound like a silly question. What are good works? Isn't it obvious? And why do we need to know this or study it? But when you study this further, you can see that this is actually a really important question. What are good works? How do we define them? You know, defining good works is all about defining how God wants us as Christians to live before Him every day. And so it's important to get this right. And that's because there are actually two dangers in this regard when it comes to good works. If we get it wrong, we will either end up embracing legalism or we will embrace sin and call it good. We have to guard against both of those dangers. We're going to look at both of these. The first one is the danger of legalism. One way we can fall into legalism is by adding to the commandments of God. This is something the Pharisees were infamous for. They laid heavy burdens on the backs of God's people by insisting the people follow their man-made rules. But the Pharisees' rules were not good works in the sight of God, no matter how well-intentioned they might have been. Instead, by insisting on their own man-made rules, the Pharisees caused the people of God to, grow, to groan under their burden. And Christ even says through their man-made rules, they even cause God's people to disobey the real commandments of God. Now, our reading from the end of Colossians 2 also guards us against this type of thing. There we read, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. So apparently, someone or some people in the church there were teaching that in order to grow as Christians and get the upper hand on sin, they had to submit to these extra rules. And if they did that, then they would really be living the energized Christian life. But these things are not true. This is pure legalism. 
might sound wise, might look holy, but it's really not. As Colossians 2 says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these extra man-made rules might sound really good, but they actually don't benefit you in the fight against sin. And so the way to grow as a Christian, to grow in our new nature, is not to add to the commandments of God. Rather, it's to live as you are in Christ and to follow the commandments God has given you in Scripture. Those are the ones we follow. And you see this sort of temptation towards legalism at various points in church history. A very stark example was that at certain points it was seen as virtuous to live the life of a monk or a nun. Uh, Men, for example, would refrain from getting married, would not work a regular job, they would live life in a monastery, they would deny themselves all kinds of physical comforts, all in an attempt to uh, come closer to God, live the best Christian life. But this was legalism adding to the commandments of God. And if we think that yeah, this is a godly lifestyle, we are sliding into legalism ourselves, and we need to resist it. Instead, we submit to what the Bible says is good, and we follow that. So that's the danger of legalism. On the flip side, there's an opposite danger that we must also stand on guard against. The opposite danger is calling good what the Bible says is sin. How might that happen? Well, I think here, so often that happens through the influence of the unbelieving world. You see, in our culture, many things which the Bible says is sin are embraced as good are extolled as as virtues to embrace and and to celebrate. And that message is then trumpeted uh, 24-7, 365 days a year for everyone to hear. And as Christians who live in the world, we we will come across that message. And so we need to be on guard. We need to resist falling into that trap. Good works are not defined by what our culture defines as good. See, there are many things our culture embraces as good that are sinful in God's eyes. Just think of the many sexual lifestyles accepted and celebrated in our world today. Right? Our culture embraces these things as something to celebrate, it, something to embrace. But we need to flee from them. Again, we really need to make sure we stand on guard here. The message of the world can creep into our minds if our minds are not shaped by God's Word. You know, it might be subtle at first, but it can happen that this thinking creeps into our minds, and then at a point, maybe we begin to think, hmm, maybe, maybe the church is wrong. Maybe our culture is correct. 
Maybe we need to change our understanding of Scripture uh, about what is good to, to match the world. And church history provides many lessons in that regard also. How many churches failed because they embraced the world's message? They started to call good the things Scripture say are evil. If we do that, it means the death of the church. So we need to be careful, beloved, to define sin by what the Bible says is sin. And we need to define good but what the Bible says is good. And when we understand it rightly from Scripture, we need to submit to that. As soon as the definition of what is good changes away from Scripture, we will quickly walk in the path of sin. So at all times, the Bible is our spiritual compass. It guides us in what is right and what is wrong. Let us follow it in all things, not adding to God's word and never taking away from it either. Amen.